possibly enjoy. Thank you, Ian. Uh, that's Ian Cooper in the background doing the IT tech for us. Uh, my name is Mike Rain, author of Nature Snowdonia and um, convener of notes from the hill. I run a small business uh, training and offering CPD to mountain leads and mountaineering instructors. As part of that, I'm interviewing some of the people behind the scenes, some of the people that make the Uplands tick, and we've renamed this series Upland Lives. Um, over the next few weeks, we've got all sorts of people coming along. We've got somebody from National Trust, National Park. Um, we've got a farmer. We've got a, even a cafe owner, cafe proprietor. How about that? And a publisher of, of books about the Uplands. Each interview gets turned into a podcast, so you can see this afterwards. And so, so you can listen to it afterwards. You can download it in your own time. And that's from the Anchor FM, but on any major podcast platforms. Anyway, hopefully you know all that. You should know that. You can find that out anyway. But I want to introduce this week's guest, who is Dr. Barbara Jones. And I've been fortunate enough to know Barbara for quite a while now, and she's been really, really helpful to me, particularly with the book Nature of Snowdonia. And, um, well, to be honest, just making sure I got things right. So everything in there needed to be checked by experts. And Barbara was my tame expert, particularly on the flowers. But she pointed me into the direction of other people as well. So, so, so Barbara's been a massive help there. Um, much more than that, Barbara is a climber, so she understands climbing. She understands climbers. She understands people going out in the hills. She's worked in outdoor education. Um, I know her as a botanist, although it, it was always just slightly odd to meet her at BMC events. And go, oh, you're, you're, I remember now, you're a climber as well and BMC volunteer. So she's going to talk to that talk to us about that and one of her missions has been to inform climbers better about what's growing on the hills there so Barbara can I welcome you to Facebook live notes from the hill how are you today I'm well thank you yeah yes well just um putting up with the cold darkness of December but there you go seasonable weather isn't yeah, it right. uh, though I believe there's some snow on the wall mm -hmm. oops Bye. But how's the year been, Barbara? It's been a funny old year, hasn't it? Covid year. How's it affected you? Well, it's kind of grounded me in a way. Um, normally, uh, we'd be out and about going to America, traveling to Europe, doing various things. We've got a van, so, you know, van life. We've not been able to do any of that this year. So it's grounded me in that way. But I've done a lot more biking, which is good. Been out and about on the bike. Um, it stopped me going up doing the monitoring of the Snowden Lily um, until much later because, of course, Snowdonia was closed. Um, so it's had impacts like that. It's basically almost isolating though, because normally I have a few meetings with the National Trust who I'm on one of their um, environment panels, BMC and Natural Resources Wales. So all the meetings have been like this. So I've been missing the interaction with people mm. that you normally get at a meeting, you know, talking before and after. So it's been a bit isolating in a way, but um, it, it's, it's been a lot better for me than it has for, for a lot of people. Oh, time. absolutely. Yeah, we are thankful for where we live and the sort of things. That's right. Um, you talk about the trips there, Barbara. Are they climbing trips or biking trips or botany trips? Biking. Uh, sorry, not biking. Climbing trips. Nearly, climbing. Uh, nearly always climbing trips. But I say that ecology and botany always goes along. It's, it's never left behind. So, you know, you're walking okay. up to a climb and if you're in somewhere like the Dolomites, it takes longer to walk up to the climb than to do something I'm else. Sure. So which came first, climbing or botany? Climbing. Um, How did you get into climbing? How did I get into climbing? It's not until I went to do my degree down outside London, Kingston. 
Um, and I'd never done any climbing, nothing like that before. My family, there's no one into the outdoors, absolutely no one. Uh, another pressure squash, I was walking along deciding which um, uh, group I should join. And I saw a mountaineering club. I thought, hmm, that looks interesting. So I joined that and for the first year I didn't do anything, just became the secretary. You know, they always have a token girl who's the secretary. Didn't do thing. <laughs> and then someone persuaded me um, to go out climbing. So I thought, okay, I'll go. So you know what my very first climb was? It was in Flamberry's Pass and it was on Dinas Mott. And one of the members of the club took me up uh, and I didn't realise at the time, but this guy wasn't a very good climber. But he offered to take me climbing, so I went out and I was 10 hours on a diff. I kid you not. Honestly, my first experience was getting halfway up there and then the guy who was taking me up, he got stuck. And he said, Barbara, we've got to shout and wave our arms and, and get someone to rescue us. So I spent about four hours waving my arms and so two guys came along and helped us to get off. And that was my first experience of climbing. And, and surprisingly, after that, I continued doing it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, that surely should have put you off for, for good. But uh, there must have been something about it. I should have been able to do that. Now, I think if I'd had any gumption at the time, I would have gone on and done it. But you know, Yeah, but not on your first climb, surely. They do say if you survive your university climbing club, you're going to be all right, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I did do, yes, that's right. <laughs> Why Kingston? You're from the north, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm from Bolton, just outside Manchester. I don't know. I just wanted to get far away from home, not for any oh. nasty reason, but just to see the world. And I had an interview for quite a few places and this just looked a good course. Um, I, I was quite rebellious, so I didn't want to go to university. None of my <laughs> family, again, had ever done anything like that. But I thought, well, if I go to a polytechnic, I can still get a degree. Um, so Kingston just seemed to offer a very good course and it was outside London it was an exciting place for someone to go so oh, it's a nice place isn't it if you've got to go to London I worked in Surbiton briefly teaching oh, right. so we lived in uh, Surbiton, yeah yes yeah, so, so I know that area so um that was geography as well wasn't it it was yeah you hadn't discovered the botany at this time no where did the climbing and the geography take you next um where did the climbing well, I suppose once I got my degree, um, just drifted for a while. I went to work in mountaineering shops because I discovered um, climbing and mountaineering. Um, but at the, just going out into the hills and loving the wild spaces, it wasn't just the climbing. There was all because I'd done geography. I was always kind of assessing things and and a bit of geology as well. And then you look down and you see a few plants. I, I don't know. I really can't explain what drew me to ecology and botany because again no one in my family had any interest in anything like that but there must have been something there that drew me in so I just kind of evolved by um, I did the outdoor education course at Bangor Barbara Roscoe's course and then worked in outdoor centres for a while but because I had a, a geographical background I was doing field studies as well so I suppose that kind of Drew, drew me a little bit more into what's in the outdoors other than just the climbing and, and, and all the rest of it. So I don't know, it was just a gradual evolution into ecology. Um, and then I got a job with the um, Nature Conservancy Council and, and that was it, you know, life changed from working in mountaineering and outdoor pursuits in, into working in conservation. But the two still, you know, they still mesh together very well in my life. Yeah, it's good. It's good to hear them mesh together. My, my journey, journey wasn't different, really. You know, took well, hill walking, climbing, and um, getting into the uh, the outdoor centres. 
and and geography as well mm -hmm. um, but ending up more interested in the flowers so i, I don't know why but they are quite nice they are quite nice isn't it so you didn't have any influence was it, there wasn't somebody who inspired you it was just seeing the flowers and finding them out did you look them up in books and things did you go through people find that really hard did you mm -hmm. learn that hard I, I did to start off with um and like many people i was wandering up on the car and i remember this day and i was looking down and i saw a little yellow flower and you know what it is it's tormentil isn't it um, and i scratched my head i wondered what this was so i went back and and we had a fl little floor at the time so i've managed to figure out what it was and then bit by bit you learn a little bit more but also working with people and working in conservation you pick up things very very quickly so i had the advantage of you know working in field studies working in conservation and, and being living up here and just going out with other people as well so once you start working for well it wasn't natural resources wales it wasn't even ccw was it, <laughs> oh, it was a long time ago <laughs> what what do you actually do when you're a professional botanist ecologist right. what's the day job entail well the first job i got uh which went through for quite a few years was what they call assistant regional officer but basically it's a conservation officer covering a certain area and the first job i had was the the cairngorms right covering um, wow. and that was when all this skiing um development they were trying to yeah. develop the skiing more and there was the big controversy about putting ski lifts up lurchers gully um, so that was quite fraught up there, but it was a wonderful place to work. I was there for about two years and it's basically um, looking after any management issues, any conservation issues, any development issues, um, doing the scientific surveys, just looking after anything to do with the conservation in that particular area. So I was based in the Cairngorms for a couple of years and then I came back down to Wales. Uh, and I covered um, various habitats in Snowdonia. So the woodlands, the coasts and, and the mountains like the Frinog and Cadda. So it's, it's covering a particular area and doing all the conservation issues. So if, if a farmer wants to do a certain thing on an SSSI that is one of the damaging operations, you have to go to see him and work out what can happen, if he can do it and when and so on. Um, if some scientists want to come and do some survey, you work with them and find out what they want to do and how and where. So I did that for a good number of years until um, in about 1999, I think it was, I, um, because I was so interested in the uplands, I became the upland ecologist for Wales, which is covering the whole of Wales, <clears throat> working on the management, the conservation, survey, advice, everything to do with the uplands in Wales, which is a dream job, eh? Well, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And that's really where we come to know you from, is that uh, particularly the Arctic Alpines, isn't it? So what, what was it about the Arctic Alpines that grabbed you and, and what, what do we need to know about them? What's so special about them? Well, what grabbed me first is being a climber mountaineer. That's the, the type of plant that you see most of the time. And as a climber mountaineer, you're surviving in a harsh environment. And that's what these plants are doing. Um, they're plants that are normally grow up in the high Arctic or in the high Alpine, above the tree line or beyond the tree line. So um, they're plants that have to um, they have a short growing season, they grow in very exposed areas, um, quite often they don't have much water, you think that they're very wet but a lot of the time the water's frozen. Um, so these plants have to cope with really um, extreme environments um, and they're really well adapted. Uh, and I often tend to think that's what we as mountaineers do, we are coping with extreme environments and sometimes we're well adapted but sometimes not. So it seemed a no-brainer that I was a climber mountaineer, these plants in Wales, in Britain, growing difficult terrain that most people can't normally get to 
So I think the interest increased when I realized, well, if I look at the Snowden lily or if I want to study these plants, I might need to use climbing techniques to get to them. So that the two of them just kind of mesh together in a way. And you have almost become synonymous with the Snowden lily. Uh, how did that come about? And, uh, <laughs> you still monitor them every year, don't you? Yep, um, I do. Um, I've been do monitoring them in Wales for oh, over 25 years now. Wow. Uh, and some people say, oh, well, you've got a fantastic data set there. You know, we must exactly know what's happening to them. Yeah, yeah, come on, surely. Yeah, but when you think they've been up there for about 10,000 years and 25 <laughs> years, it's, not, it's just a teeny little bit, you know, in, in, in such a time scale. And what I've been finding recently is that the numbers, especially at one site, are going down, 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 down. Um, so let's say we had a thousand at one year. Now it might be 500 or so. Uh, now you think, oh, that's, that's, that's worrying, you know, is this climate change? What's happening? But it might not be that. Um, it may be that these plants, they occupy a little micro niche and they grow there and they're quite happy for years. And then perhaps they use up all the resources in that little niche and then they die off there, but their seed starts to grow up somewhere else. So even though I'm studying these, there's two main sites I go to and numbers are going down on both. I'm not worrying too much because it could be that the whole population on a whole cliff is a little bit more mobile than that. Well, um, certainly the snow lily grows in tiny little cracks, doesn't it? Hairline cracks in the rock. So, so you're saying they run out of nutrients in that particular location and hopefully take up in another location somewhere else. Could well be, could well be. And um, one of the reasons you see them growing in those cracks is that a seed will fall perhaps at the top of the crack and then that'll germinate and start growing and then it develops vegetatively so it'll grow from the bulb at the bottom of that one plant and it'll grow down and you could have 10 12 13 little bulbs growing down so you see the leaves all growing out from one crack but that's just one plant they're all actually growing um, from one uh, seed that initially went there so even though you might count, say, you've got a crack there, you've got 10 growing out. That's not 10 yeah. plants, that's one plant. They're uh, all growing out from attachments from the original plant. So it's a bit difficult to assess populations sometimes. It is, isn't it? And mm. there's no conflict with climbers climbing on the crags where the snow and lilies grow, is there? Well, not normally. Um, luckily, summer climbing usually um, is attracted to the type of rocks that um, Arctic alpines aren't attracted to. So Arctic alpines like north-facing, cold, wet, um, friable rocks, which is not really what people do for rock climbing. So usually there's not much conflict with rock climbing, summer rock climbing and plants. But unfortunately, Snowden lily does grow on one cliff high up on the glitter. And it is, well, this is attractive fish for climbing. Um, I must admit, when I've been surveying once or twice, I've looked around and thought, oh, can make a nice line. And some people did that a number of years ago and went up and put a few roots up there. Um, they, they didn't know, they had no idea. But on my little survey sites, I have little metal tags that I stick on with numbers so I can zoom in on them each year. Um, and one, one of the people who was putting up the roots there called the cli climb, climbing by numbers. So he must have seen these tags and must have known there was something going on. Anyway, um, <laughs> it all came down to I got in touch with the person, talked to them, told them what it was all about, and we agreed with the BMC that there will be a voluntary 
um, restriction or a voluntary no climbing on that cliff. It's a small mm. cliff. It's over an hour to walk up to it. It's, it's quite nice, but I think everyone in North Wales who knows about that now agrees, fine, well, it's one of the most important places for Snowden Lily, so we'll leave it alone and go somewhere else. And, and the Snowden Lily special because it only grows in Snowdonia? Mm, in, where, in Britain. In the in UK. Britain, in the UK. If you go abroad, you know, it is not rare at all. Obviously, oh. it grows in the Rocky Mountains, <laughs> it grows in the Alps, in the Carpathians, in the Himalayas. When I was doing uh, my research on it, I went out and spent a lot of time in America researching because so much of it there. <laughs> and I went up onto the tundra, onto the Alpine, and I was walking around trying not to stand on the snow and lily. And the people thought, it was a strange <laughs> <laughs> It's common. Honestly, it's really common. So that, that makes it good that you can look yeah. at something that's really rare here but compare it with something that's you know that's really interesting rare. that because there are some arctic alpines that grow in fewer sites in snowdonia aren't they although they do grow in other parts of the uk but they actually mm -hmm. i'm thinking of mountain havens as one example off the top of my head and maybe tufted saxifrage alpine saxifrage you know these are in really fewer locations than even the snowden lily aren't that's they that's right but because it's the snowden lily it captures the imagination and some people say well it's not rare here I mean, it is rare here, but it's not rare in the rest of the world. Mm. So if you've got very few resources for conservation, it's quite often said, well, you shouldn't worry about the snow and lily. If it dies out here, then there's tons of it elsewhere. But I think it's really important culturally, certainly, but also plants that grow right on the edge of the range. They're usually a little bit different to those in the centre. Mm. Genetically, they will be a little bit different as well. And that's the stuff that evolution works off. So if you get rid of those things that are right on the edge of the range, apart from death by a thousand cuts, um, it means you've lost that evolutionary potential, just that little bit of slight difference. So if climate change or anything else comes in, we're, we're just losing that potential. Mm. So I think it's really important that we keep things right on the edge of the range and, and not just look after something that's right in the middle. So I think you've said we've, we've managed climbers in terms of um, the voluntary climbing ban. I think you're saying that in terms of climate change, because you've only got a 25 year data set, it's mm. difficult to say exactly. We can mm. predict it's going to be a challenge, but it's hard to say. What, what are the threats are there to the Arctic Alpines and Comidwell and, and how have you been able to influence the management of those? Uh, well, the biggest threat to Arctic Alpines in the whole of the UK is sheep, I'm afraid. Um, uh, sheep grazing. Uh, a lot of people go on the hills and think, oh, it's lo lovely, it's wonderful, it's wild. It's not. Um, it's a very grazed environment. It's anything but wild. And the Arctic alpines do normally grow on the cliffs, north-facing, pretty inaccessible. But if there was no grazing, or much less grazing, then they'd grow on the more accessible. They'd never grow on, on the uh, rolling uh, grassy areas. It would be too wet for them there. But they would grow on far more scree that is accessible at the moment, and the more broken rocks. So Comidwell is really important for Arctic Alpines. It's one of the most important parts of the country for them. And many years ago, it was one of my sites. Uh, and I was thinking, this is terrible. You know, the, these populations, they're tiny and they're really restricted to very small areas on the cliff. And because of that, they, they must have a very um, small genetic diversity in there. There's very little genetic diversity. And what we really need to um, look after these plants is for the populations to get bigger 
And if they get bigger and spread out a bit more, then you can get more sexual uh, reproduction because you get pollen transfer from one to the other. And when you get that, you get more diversity, which will give them more possibilities for the future. So if we get climate change, if you've got a bigger population with more genetic diversity, you're more likely to be able to um, continue into the future. So I was looking at Comidral and thinking, well, obviously there's, there's one big problem here is the sheep, but what do we do? But luckily in the late 1990s, National Trust who owned the site, their tenant, tenancy was coming up for review and the, the tenant that they had was retiring. He didn't want to um, continue anymore. So they said, okay, we'll get another tenant in. And I thought, hang on a minute. Um, this is a absolutely one in a lifetime chance to not get a tenancy in, to take it in hand um, and take the grazing off completely. And oh, it took me so long to persuade people to do this. The National Trust were originally, they were very reticent and they thought, no, we must bring back some more grazing. It's what you do on the hills, isn't it? Mm. But eventually they were persuaded by some um, visiting um, dignitaries from New Zealand. <laughs> and the National wow. Trust thought not to look at this place. Uh, and the, apparently the people from New Zealand threw up their hands in horror and said, this is terrible. They said, what are you doing with this site? So eventually the National Trust thought, okay, perhaps we should think about this. Same with Countryside Council for Wales, who I was working for at the time. And they were eventually persuaded, okay, let's take the grazing off Comidwell completely and we'll review it every 10 years. We'll, we'll do it for 50 years initially. Now, again, that was difficult because people usually work on a three to five year basis. Mm. But in the uplands, it takes forever for something to change. After five years, you know, you'd hardly see any difference. So it was a 50 year um, thing originally and we've Ooh, done just over 20 years or so at the time um, so it was a big thing for them to do at the time but the the idea was as well was not to put fencing around because that would look pretty awful and be very expensive but to get a shepherd so one of the local um tenants was brought in to shepherd the sheep out you know you will still see sheep there but we used to have about one and a half thousand sheep in there mm -hmm. now two hundred or so you know so we bought the grazing right right down and it's had an impact i mean you're going to comidwell now and if you know comidwell if you knew it many years ago it's looking so different it really is yeah so there have been some things the whole idea of that was to protect the arctic alpines which need no yeah. grazing the bottom the whole idea was to just let that develop into a more natural vegetation almost a, 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 a rewilding in a way but that, that just wasn't an issue uh, in the past. Mm. So the idea is to get the, the bottom part to develop some more natural vegetation, perhaps even a bit of scattered scrub in the future and heath, and then to uh, allow the Arctic Alpines to spread off their um, cliff, cliff sides. It'll take a while, but it's happening. There's 20 years on, are you pleased with what you're seeing in Comidwell now? Yeah, yeah, very pleased. I went for a walk up there the other day and I always get this little twinge of, whoop, uh, you wouldn't understand it unless you're very interested in upland ecology, but I get this little, just a little frisson of excitement whenever I see it now. And when it first started to happen about 10 years ago, I used to think, oh no, what have we done? You know, is it going to get out of control? But obviously it won't do. Uh, and I think it's looking wonderful. And many people were worried at the beginning because they thought it'd be a jungle. They wouldn't be able to walk through there. You know, I mean, it's, it's, we're going to spoil it. I had lots of people saying we're going to spoil it. But bit by bit, people have come along with us. Um, they love seeing the bog asphodel. Um, it colours the, the whole bottom part mm. of it become yellow in, in July. And then when the heath comes in, that looks wonderful. You can still walk through. There are paths everywhere. So 
no, I think it's great. No, it looks like a real success to me. Do you think we'd see it in any other parts of Wales? Do you think there are opportunities for that now with the changes in the way we fund farming coming ahead? Is it is it a dream that we can dream? I should imagine. Well, it's certainly a dream we can dream. Whether we make it a reality or not, I don't know. Uh, the trouble is it, it all gets very political as well, because if you do something like that, it's seen as um, ousting the farmers. Um, and even at the time with Comidwell, they said, oh, you, you want to get rid of all the farmers. We don't. Uh, not at all. But Comidwell was a special case and it was so important for these Arctic Alpines. We had to do something for them. Many other places, you know, it's fine to farm them. Um, something I did many years ago was to develop what you call the Nutland Framework. Um, this was when I was the Upland Ecologist and it was looking at all the Upland sites in Wales, um, the conservation sites, and saying what we wanted from a conservation point of view on each site. So were the woodlands more important, were the, the peatlands more important, were the grasslands important, and produced maps of all these sites saying, right, as a conservationist, this is what we want here, there and everywhere. And again, people were so worried saying, oh, the farmers are going to hate this, you know, we can't tell people this. But I presented it to lots of farmers um, groups and again, they didn't like it very much, but they said, at last, you're starting to tell us what you want. We can start talking now. And I think that's so important because mm. everyone wants things so much um, pressure on the uplands now. Um, to do find when you have these conversations there's a lot more agreement than you might expect yeah. and there's certainly a big movement now called nature friendly farming isn't there? there's a lot of farmers getting involved with that yeah. have you had anything to do with that have you seen that movement growing not really i mean not uh, just on periphery reading about it but no i've not been uh, actually involved seems to be coming from farmers and is more achievable than yeah. rewilding per se which means yeah. lots of different things to different people doesn't it yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's really positive well, a lot of people say, well, do you, should it, we have rewilding or should we have nature-friendly farming? We can have both. I mean, the yeah, are, I think there's room. certain areas where we can rewild, certain areas where we can have nature-friendly farming, certain areas where we can have intensive farming. You know, let's just decide what and where is the main thing. There's certainly room, Barbara. Now, you've also worked hard to get these messages to the climbers and hill walkers through volunteering with the BMC. And I believe you've done some work with the Climbers Club as well in their guidebooks. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you get into volunteering for the BMC and what sort of things do you still do there? Um, well, the BMC, I, it was when I was working up in Scotland in the Cairngorms. Um, and I think I must have been working with some people or talking to people who interacted or worked with the BMC in the past. And I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. You know, I'm a mountaineer, I'm a conservationist, ecologist. It'd be nice to, to help them out a bit. So I contacted them and they said, yes, we'd be interested, but you work in Scotland, so you can't do it at the moment. So when I moved back down to Wales, I just said, well, you know, put me into whatever you'd like me to do. So they, they took me into their access and conservation group. And I was on that for ages. And that still works in, in a different way now. It's called the Access Management Group. I'm not actually on that, but I, I suppose I'm their tame ecologist now. So if they need any advice or, or want any help, then I'm always on the end of a phone or the end of an email. The, the three access conservation people we've got working there are really very good. Elvin's one of them. Uh, and they know a heck of a lot. But there's times when either they're too busy or they need just a bit of extra expertise. So um, that's where I come along. So I help in lots of things with them. Um, the latest this year was, was it this year? Yes, it was. As the um, statement that they produced on driven gross more. Uh, driven gross more hunting and that was a really good thing for um, BMC to do. A few people said well you know you shouldn't be doing that it's nothing to do with climbing and climbers but it's to do with the uplands it's to do with where we do our recreation and where we go out 
So um, I convened a small group uh, and we produced this statement, which went out about a month or so ago. So that's that's the latest thing I've done with them. But there's so many other things with BMC. There's the um, the white guides um, for our winter climbing. Um, this has been another of my uh, pet subjects for a number of years. Arctic alpines. I said earlier on that summer climbing uh, and Arctic alpines is not usually a problem. Yeah. Winter climbing is because winter climbing is obviously on the north face yeah. of the that these um, plants like to grow on. And up till recent years, it's not been a problem because climbers have climbed when there's been a good covering of snow and ice and, and they've only yeah. had some basic equipment. Now, with all the um, in improvements in equipment and more people climbing, they're tending to go out when there's a thinner cover of ice and even dry tooling and so on. Uh, and this is, uh, is liable to cause real damage to the Arctic alpines because if you think if you're climbing on these cliffs and there's not much of a cover of snow and ice and you get your ice axe picking there, you could, really, you could be prizing out Snowden Lily or whatever else. Uh, and we do know that Snowden Lily grows in some of the most important places where people climb. So that the idea was to tell people, right, these are the areas, these are the really important areas for the Arctic alpines. If conditions are um, pretty poor, you know, not, there's not a good covering of snow, then please, please go somewhere else. Um, and the whole idea is to give people this information so that they can um, act on it, uh, not do cause any damage. Um, uh, because the alternative is these places could be closed. And I did have people work that I worked with saying to me, right, these are important sites, we must stop all the climbing. And I said, hang on a minute, you know, let, let's let's think about this first. So, so the, there's pressure on both sides. The conservationists say, hey, stop. And a lot of the climbers say, now, what the hell? I'm going to go up anyway. And I try and juggle these two in the middle to try and get mm. them to talk to each other. That, that's that might... really successful, though, because I have seen on the, on the forums, um, on UK uh, climbing forums, people talking now saying, well, I, I checked the temperature gauges and, and it's not very good. So, you know, we might be affecting them. Perhaps we shouldn't go. The conversation started and that's brilliant. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, my perception on that scale is BMC with volunteers like yourself are doing a pretty good job on making sure climbers are aware of those issues on those cliffs. So when mm. they're climbing, when the winter climbing, it's the same with the um, the bird voluntary agreements around bird nesting yeah, sites and that sort of thing. But I just want to go back to that grouse shooting statement. That's kind of a new step for the BMC to comment on those bigger issues of mm. the upland. And mm. I definitely think as such key users of the upland um, both professionally and um, for fun that BMC members hill walkers climbers sh should be thinking more about those bigger issues mm. do you think that's something that we we need to explore a little bit more I'd certainly like to think so um, because as some of the biggest users of the uplands we shouldn't restrict or um, comments or all thoughts just to the things that directly impact us well I mean grouse shooting does directly impact us because uh, certainly more in Scotland than England and very little in Wales but at certain times of the year you can't go on the moors because the grouse shooting is going on. Now we're not talking about stopping grouse shooting, uh, it's a, just a certain type of grouse shooting and the burning of blanket bog and the killing of raptors that com comes alongside that but these are just so, such important things and such things that we can't turn our, our, our eyes against. We can't say okay we're a mountaineer we're only going to be interested in something that affects the, the climbing that we do. No, it, we should have a much wider aspect these days, I think. So, so there's a step forward there in that we are knowing more, understanding more about the upland environment and being in a better place to comment on it. That's right. And, uh, and I'd certainly support that as a movement.
So that works for climbers and hill walkers. Um, you also go mountain biking as well. Mm. And there are other users in the uplands. There are a set of users who are not really hill walkers in the traditional sense. They come to say, Snowdonia to go on the on one of the steam railways and go on one of the zip lines and sure. maybe visit the Anglesey coast and then walk up Snowden on another day. How do we get those messages out to that new group of people using the uplands? Mm. Now, that's a difficult one. Um, I recently um, was, uh, someone told me that they'd been invited to go for a bike ride up on the Carnevai, right up on the tops, a mountain bike ride. And they declined because they thought, well, you know, this is an important environment. Perhaps we shouldn't be impacting it. So I thought, well, a lot of mountain bikers probably are not aware of this kind of thing at all. So I contacted the mountain uh, bike magazine, MBT, Mountain Bike UK, whatever it's called. Anyway, yeah. I offered to write them uh, a piece on this, which they accepted, which was good of them. And, and they put that in. And hopefully that's got through to the mountain bike world. I'm not really in the mountain bike world in that way. So I, I don't know what impact it had. But I think that's that's the way to go forward to find out which forums or which magazines or, or what kind of thing these people uh, use uh, and put the information out there. I'm a great believer in when I say education, I really mean information giving, passing information out mm -hmm. to people, because that's the biggest problem. We say, oh, this person does that or this group does that. They do it because they don't realize, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, the issue we had with. Uh, groups going down in gorges a few years ago mm. um the warden was tearing his hair out because they were causing so much damage and he couldn't contact he didn't know how to contact them all so we set up a, a seminar brought in lots of the um center uh, staff from north wales uh and it was brilliant we just told them everything that was important about the gorges the fact that we had to make sure that there was no damage before we could allow them to continue produced a little um, a DVD that went out to the centres and the warden is just made up with it now. He said it's brilliant just because uh, we've gone out and given them the information, told them what we want and, and discussed how they can avoid um, impacting it. So I think it's, it's finding the groups, finding the nexus or, you know, uh, who organises these people. As for individuals, I don't know. Um, that's a bit more difficult. Yeah, that's really hard, isn't it? But you also highlight another problem that I think both the conservation sector and the recreation sector have in that they've got so many representative bodies, so many different people fighting for their little bit. Yeah. And somehow we need to condense those organisations from a conservation point of view and, and from an outdoor recreation point of view. I think that... Do you think that puts it as a, a disadvantage? Um, the NFU, for example, you know, they talk to government every day, don't they? But um, outdoor education seems to have been forgotten through mm. this period of lockdown and, and conservation is yeah. just coincidental, really, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Well, not, I'm not actually involved too much in the outdoor education world itself at the moment, but I'm certainly seeing the stuff that BMC are doing, that they've got lots of contacts with government and, and you know, government agencies, and, and they're pressing um, the point of view of mountaineering climbing all the time, and they're doing some really good work with that. And I presume lots of the other um, biking, walking, uh, lots of the other organisations are doing that. But for outdoor education, I don't know, that there surely must be some for that um, are... Oh, there is, yeah. And they're, they're working really hard, but uh, I suppose my point is there's more than one organisation batting for outdoor education. Mm. There's more than one organisation talking on behalf of climbers and walkers. Yeah. There's another one for cavers and paddlers. Mm. And then it's similar in the conservation world. There's lots of different charities. There's Snowdonia mm. Society, there's National Trust, 
mm. and then there's plant life and so on and so forth. You know, the, mm. it, somehow the message, I worry about it getting lost because we've mm. got so many different voices. And Well, that's why in the conservation world, the wildlife link, which brings all these um, voluntary organizations together and, and the not so voluntary as well. Uh, and they can all talk with one voice. And I think Wildlife Link as well did bring out something on driven ground shooting, uh, even before the BMC statement. And, and that has more impact because it's got RSPB, National Trust, BMC, Wildlife Trust, all of those people involved in it. So I think everyone working together with one voice uh, will have far more impact. Let me just ask you about Snowden, Barbara, because um, you've done an amazing job in Comidwell and that um, lobbying that you did to get the sheep removed from Comidwell has made a massive difference. Snowden's got some big problems now in terms of overuse by walking, people walking, be they hill walkers or, or, or mm. tourists of a different nature, but it's also got lots of different land uses, hasn't it? Mm. And there's a Snowden partnership being put together by the National Park. What, what, and, and then parking, we all said, well, it's parking that's a big issue. What are your thoughts on Snowden? What would you like Snowden to be? How could it be improved? Ooh, <laughs> could I have free reign? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, well, if, if I could do anything on Snowden, again, I'd get rid of lots of the sheep, not all of them, because there's some places uh, where grazing yeah. would be helpful. And when I was doing the Upland Framework, we produced a map for the Snowden Massif saying oh, really? woodland, woodlands at the bottom would be wonderful. Mm. And wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to walk through woodlands that then thinned out to some scrub naturally, no fence lines, no uh, change from woodland to grassland, thinned out to some scrub. Then you went to um, the heather and then you went to the grassland and then the montane. I mean, that would be an idea, not just on Snowden, but anywhere in Wales. There's very few places you get that. But coming back to reality, Snowden is so important to people, to walkers, to, to visitors. It's important to the farmers. It's important for conservation. So I think the approach that I was trying to bring together with this upland framework, where we as conservationists say, right, this is what is important for us here. Um, this is which is not negotiable all this is negotiable you know how can we move forward with that and i think the thing to do is to decide what's the most important thing on snowden from a conservation point of view arctic alpines are really very important it's not too important for the montane the stuff right upon the top it's very important for woodlands and there's one or two little myers and there's some sort of bird interest so what i would do is say right these are the really important areas this is what we should concentrate on for conservation the farming, what's really important and where and how can we integrate that into it and how can we reduce its impact on those. And as for the people, people, I find people say, how, how can you have so many people in Comidwell and they don't impact it? Well, most people don't. They just walk through. And mm. that would be the same on Snowden. People walk mm. through. I mean, there, there are certain footpaths that are getting a bit eroded, but with good management, they're fine. And it, even if it was a tarmac track, it would look awful. It wouldn't really impact on, on the, you know, the, the conservation interest, certainly. So I think the people could be managed very well um, if you ignore all the parking issues and yeah. all the rest of it. But we've really got to start saying, right, what's really important for conservation? What's really important for farming? What's really important? And, and let, let's just talk and decide what happens where. Mm. But to get people to sit down and do that is so difficult these days there's so much politicization of everything and if conservationists move too far then the farmers will say oh you're just trying to get rid of all the farmers from the hills if the farmers move too far then we say well you know you, you're just getting rid of all the plants and all the birds and and we, we tend to shout at each other we don't get together enough i mean these meetings that i had with the farmers where i was showing them the upland framework i really expected rotten tomatoes to be thrown at me but 
they said, okay, fine, you're talking to us now, you know, let's, let's go further. Um, so we really need to just sit and talk. But for, for Snowden, that's what I'd do. I'd, I'd get everyone together and everyone to say, what is the most important thing there? There's going to be some overlaps, there'll be some arguments, but, you know, we should be able to move forward with it. You think the potential for one of the coombs to be um, a bit wilder than they are now, um, maybe one that was owned by a charity or maybe a private landowner could buy one and do that. So uh, I think that's something we need to, I suppose we need to sell the vision to people, don't we? And Comidwell is doing that along with some rewilding projects in other parts of the country as well. That's right. Yeah, there's no reason why we can't have a whole load of them. Um, and uh, some people have said that uh, if you, a, a private landowner comes in and, and buys some land on Snowden or wherever else. Um, perhaps they take all the grazing off or, or do something. And then people say, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. But I don't think it is. I know some people shoot me down for this, but it's their land and it's their decision what to do with it. I know you have to take into account local culture and, and uh, what's mm. happening locally. And perhaps it's too much to take all the grazing off. Comedwell was a special... Um, yeah. Special reason for taking the grazing off because it was so important for Arctic Alpines. But many other places, you don't need or want to take all the grazing off. You could mm. just reduce the numbers, which mm. would certainly help. Bringing some cattle. I mean, cattle are, are much better, and horses, ponies are much better yep. uh, from a yep. conservation point of view for grazing. And one good thing that we have done over the years is to get more cattle on the hill. Uh, mm. Why? Why are cattle so good on the hill? Cattle aren't such fussy, fussy grazers as um, sheep. Cattle will eat whatever's there, but sheep are very fussy. So what you end up with sheep is that they'll eat all the nice juicy bits of grass and they'll leave all the mat grass and then the millennia grass behind. So you get hills just a monoculture of a particular type of grass. So cattle are, uh, will eat a lot more. They're heavier, so they break up the sward a bit more and that leaves bits of exposed soil for um, other plants to come in. You can get even small shrubs or, or trees uh, germinating there. So cattle in lower numbers will tackle some of the fibrous stuff that sheep won't eat uh, and they produce a, a much better um, vegetation. But you we, have we to said, have smallish numbers though, I mean you can't have loads yeah, of them. We are seeing more cattle on the hill and we have got some farms in Wales that are accidentally quite wild I think just because of accidents of history. And in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be talking to a farmer and I shall certainly ask some of these questions about how the uplands could be grazed and could be grazed differently. But I think we'd accept there's room for everything, isn't there? There's there is definitely the room. Yeah, that's where we can afford to, you know, be, be a little bit generous here and there. But I think yeah. we have to, all of us have to say which are our, our no compromises, you know, like coming with the, the Arctic Alpines. You can't just say, OK, yeah, we'll let all those go because they're, they're just internationally so important. Um, so we, we've all got to say which are our most important bits, but then yes, compromise with the rest of it. Yeah, because mm, yeah, we like the history and the culture and there's nothing better than watching a sheepdog round and sheep up. These are all part of the hill, aren't they? These yeah, are good things. Now, I, I wouldn't mean, want people to get the wrong impression there. We do think there's room for, for everything. Oh, for definite, yeah. And lots of places, grazing is what... Chuff, for example, chuff mm. need um, fairly heavily grazed. And I've had a few arguments with uh, RSPB in the past because I, I like to you know, reduce the grazing and get the vegetation back. But if we identify the important places for chuff, great, you know, let's get the sheep in there, uh, get yeah, the grazing in. Yeah. Yeah. Barbara, it's a few years ago now. I remember you coming to a, a BMC Cymru Wales meeting. I was a little bit apprehensive, actually. And, and you did a, a really good talk with, with slides and images. And, and the gist of the talk was, putting some fences on the top of the car nether and you thought the climbers and hill walkers would be really 
worried about fencing off big areas on the top of the car neither but i think you got a pretty good reception didn't you why did you want those areas fenced up and what's happened to that idea okay well it was right up on the top of the car neither we've got a type of vegetation it's called montane heath and basically it's tiny low-growing mosses lichens um little um bilberries uh, and also the smallest tree in Britain, which is called the dwarf willow, which only grows about two inches high. Beautiful little thing. Now, this montane vegetation, normally you find it in Greenland and Iceland, Scandinavia and, and Scotland. And the stuff that we have in North Wales is the furthest south in the UK. And it's only about one percent of what we have in the UK. So it's right on the edge, right on the edge. And um, the bit that I'm talking about is between Penarolwyn and Carnarth Dabith on the coal there, although it does go to Carnarth Llewellyn as well. And it's a lovely um, type of vegetation, but most people just wouldn't notice it. You walk through, it's only an inch or so high. Mm. Um, and it's been heavily grazed because it's common land. It's been heavily grazed for yep. many, many years. And it is a mess, honestly. It's almost, all the vegetation's gone. And in some areas, you're almost right down to the soil. And I've been worrying about this for years. So I got some people to come in and do some research to find out that um, it would be recoverable um, with lower grazing levels. It's not just because pollution does affect it, but it's not just pollution. It's mainly grazing that is the problem. So what we needed to do was to take the grazing off for a number of years, yeah. allow it to just recover. So the idea was to put a couple of um, big explosions on, not on the col itself, but just off the footpath and just um, to the north there'd be a couple of biggish explosions there just to keep the sheep out for i don't know probably 10 20 years or so and then see how things are going and the explosions could go away now a lot of people again think that the carnet is wild it's beautiful they don't like fences up there and i agree with them i wouldn't like fences up there really but i'd swallow that to be able to get this vegetation back so the idea was to show all the mountaineers the climbers the people who use that um as much as anyone apart from the farmers perhaps and say look this is the problem. How can we um, address this problem? Um, and I was trying to get, you know, other ideas as well. But the only idea that I could think of and, and wasn't gainsaid by anyone else is to put a couple of fences up there. So basically it was just showing the mountaineering um, fraternity. This is um, our proposal. Is this something you'd accept? And, and they were almost overwhelmingly supportive. You know, they could understand what the problem was. The fence wouldn't go over the footpath, so they wouldn't have to be um, going over stiles and so on. It would just be a little bit out of sight. The promise is to remove it, you know, once um, the thing had recovered. Uh, so it was great. <laughs> and that was about, what, 10 years ago and nothing's happened. Mm, never happened. Slowly in this world, and it's mainly because it's a common land and it's strange common, which... which um, the people who live in Llanfleckid all have um, the ability to put a lot of sheep up there. So it's a very difficult comment to work with from that point of view. And again, people in the conservation world are just scared of doing it, scared of doing it. And oh, I just got so frustrated and nothing's happened. Some people who've been up on Fluent Moor will have noticed there's a little cage up there. It's only, oh, I don't know, about two, three metres long, a metre or so wide. And the idea was to put that up and see what would happen. Uh, and we've also got a few little hanging baskets, which some people might have seen up on the, <laughs> up on the Carnedai. And we go up there every year and monitor just to see how the vegetation is going. And as you'd expect, with no grazing, it's growing. Um, but again, we don't want to take the sheep off completely. The idea would be to give it a bit of a rest for a while and then bring light grazing back. But nothing's happened, I'm afraid. So um, mm. 
I'm, I'm not sure whether the fences will go up there, but if they don't, I reckon we've probably lost this habitat from Wales, which would be so sad. I mean, it it's the south in, in the UK and right on the edge of the range and, you know, death by a thousand cuts. What's next? And there are other enclosures. There's other enclosures around Comedable, isn't there? There's some uh, above between the miners' path and the pig track. Do you know how long they've been there? Some of those are looking quite good. Some of the ones in Comedable have been there for about 40 years and they were our grazing uh, experimental grazing explosions, one of them was. Another was down by the lake that was to protect the peat because the, the stream and the path oh. of the time went straight through there and there was lots of erosion so they put that there to slow down the um, movement of peat mm -hmm. and, and that's worked really well. Similar to the ones on Snowden to, um, I think they were grazing um, uh, experiments as well. So you can put them up there but this is in such a sensitive area right up on the top. You wouldn't put it there to do an experiment really you do it there put it there to really protect something that you know is, is going really really fast mm -hmm. and climate change as well i mean that's an, another one unless we get that habitat up there in good condition climate change might do for it completely because it is a montane habitat it's used to being up in the arctic so oh, it's so sad if that goes but if anyone goes for a walk up on the counter they get down on your hands and knees and just have a look at this tiny little um uh, willow growing up there dwarf willows beautiful thing quite spectacular isn't it and then the is it the arctic sawfly gulls in yes, there as well the my goodness i thought they were berries at first yeah. that's <laughs> incredible berries on a willow, yes. yeah i wonder if there's hope with the um Carnethi partnership to address some of these things and i've got a question in from felicity turner she's talking about would be nice to see more education on this in schools and you know, even if you can't do that nationally, surely the schools around North Wales and those yes. in Snowdonia mm. could, could do something on this. There yeah. is a new curriculum coming in, it's the Donaldson curriculum, so maybe there's, there is some hope there. I wonder how we can influence any of that. Yeah. I don't know. Awesome. Do you know anything about that? Or? No, I don't know anything about that, I'm yeah. afraid. But certainly the Carnevi partnership, they're supposed to be working on the communities around the Carnevi, uh, including education and so on. And I'm sure that they'll be including that kind of thing um, because the whole idea is to get the community involved and, and wanting to protect it. And wouldn't that be wonderful because the community is the commoners. And if the yeah. commoners like, eventually got it into their head that this is only a, what we're talking about, five hectares, 10 hectares, over yeah. you know, hundreds of hectares up there, then yeah, that would be great if it came from that side rather than from the conservation side. That would be quite That would be brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a question from Tim Jepson here. Do you have any opinion about the environmental effect of the proliferation of micro hydro schemes in North Wales? Hmm, that's a difficult one. Um, is, we're all conservationists. We want we want um, renewable energy. Uh, we want to get away from fossil fuels. But I do worry that we're rushing a little bit to to get these things everywhere. It's the same with wind farms. Um, wind farms on the land worry me in the uplands because a lot of them they're on peatlands and i've seen these awful pictures of and i've seen them in, in the flesh that you know they cut right through the peat and you get all the peat being eroded with the micro hydros if they're in the right place fine i don't think there's a problem at all but if they're going to affect either the, the mosses and lichens the bryophytes or, or the fish or, or any of the aquatic life then i think they really need to be looked at quite strongly and not just by the companies themselves i mean they, they need to be assessed um, so proliferation, yes, there are a lot and there are one or two that I would think, I'm not sure about those, but 
let, let's look at them. Let's see. We need renewable energy. And if people can have it, you know, almost in their own backyard, then let, let's look at it. But let's not just let everything go through. Yeah, case by case, I suppose, isn't it? So what hopes would you have for the future? Where do you think Snowdonia should be in 5, 10, 50 years' time? 50. Um, I'd love to see it a lot wilder and a lot shaggier. You know, it's so many of the hills are bald uh, at the moment. It's, it would be lovely to go out and, and walk up, as I said earlier on, walk up through some woodland scrub and going on to, to the heather. That would be uh, one of my great joys in 50, 100 years' time. Um, whether we get there or not, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's entirely possible and it's in our hands. It really is entirely possible. But the trouble is in the short term, we've got Brexit um, with the new environment schemes that the government will be bringing in. There's supposed to be public money for public goods. So whether that happens, I'm not sure, but I know some of it's been watered down already to a, a basic payment for, for all farmers. I just hope that the next payments are better, um, have uh, a much better impact. In the long term, climate change could be one of the, the big um, uh, impacts on the uplands. We could lose the montane. A lot of the Arctic alpine species at the moment, they're hanging on in there. But if we don't get them into bigger populations, we might lose them as well. And that would be so sad. I mean, one of the joys of walking up in the hills now is, you know, you come across a patch of saxy range here or a snow and lily there, and it, it just lifts the day. If we lose all those, that would be so sad. But we, we have the power in our hands to make um, those populations bigger, to, to extend the woodland. We could do it all, but the, we just get so tied up in the politics of everything and, and, and we don't want to upset people and we don't want to do this, something other. I really just wish that people would just get around the table and talk a bit more. Because every time I found that I've, I've got people to do that, we've got somewhere. Yeah. But people just, oh no, we can't talk to them. Oh no, that's a bit worrying. So no. uh, what do I expect in the future? It depends when you ask me. Sometimes I'm quite despondent and I think, oh, <laughs> it's just... especially if I've been out in the Alps or something and I'm come back, drive through the Ogwin Valley and quite often I look up and I think, what the hell, you know, why am I bothering? Just... And then a few days later, I'll go for a walk and I'll find, you know, the snow lily or something. I'll say, oh, this is why I'm bothering because it's still here. You know, we want to keep it here in the future. In the long term, I don't know. I've not got a crystal ball, so I can't tell you, but it, mm. could be, it could be wonderful. If rewilding takes off and if public money for public goods takes off, we could have a wonderful lot of in the future. It can't be much worse than a lot of it is at the moment. I'm not there much are, fun to drop in the hills. There, are, there are glimmers of hope there, aren't there? Oh, and yes. I know as, a, as I drive through Ogwin, I do see the willows at the side of the stream That's there right. that are fenced yeah. off. And yeah, you know, there, there, are, there are something to... Do you think climbers, hill walkers, mountain leaders, mountaineer instructors could do any more to to learn about these sort of things and to, to lobby for these sort of things? Mm -hmm. what, what do you think they could do? I think they could if they learn and find out what's going on and what they can do to help. I think that would help enormously because um, there, there is conflict between recreation and conservation. There's a lot of potential conflict. And the more that the mountain leaders learn, they can pass it on to the people, their clients, and the less impact they'll have if people learn about the impact of winter climbing, if people learn about the impact of gorge walking or, or whatever else, you know, it could have an enormous impact. Uh, it really could. It would put me out of business, but that's fine. Um, you know, as long as it, it um, um, does good for the hills in the, in the future. But it's so easy for people to find out things now. But 
there's almost an information overload but you don't yeah. have to go out and, and find Tom until yourself there's there's people like you to go out with I mean you run loads of courses you've got mm. the uh, nature of Snowdonia boot there's the plant life of Snowdonia which is you know one step on from that mm. there's those bird guides there's there's lots of talks going on there's lots of trip I took a group of people around Camidwell and they were all mountain leaders um about a year ago and it was brilliant because they, they're all very experienced local people they've been out there for years and yet they at the end of it they said gosh you know we just didn't know about all this and there's just so much that people can learn and pass on and I think that's so important for mountain leaders because you are you know you're the conduits to, to pass on to the people who'll be uh, going out there so yeah get out go out with people go on Mike's courses <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think we need to as much as we can with that really so what are you going to do next as soon as COVID's over, what are your dreams? What are your ambitions? Oh, getting in the van, going across the channel and just seeing what we get to. <laughs> be Not flying. Out to the, I love going climbing <clears> the <throat> state, so that'll be another place. And also, obviously, continuing Lloyd at Snowden Lily monitoring. That's brilliant. Uh, where's the Snowden Lily? No, no. We've talked enough about Snowden Lily. I think we'll leave it there. Um, Barbara, I think that's been absolutely fantastic. And to anybody who's listening in, we will be speaking to a farmer in two weeks' time. We'll be talking to Tulare Fielden, who is um, a, a farmer in Snowdonia, and we've got a few more coming up on there. So I'd like to say thank you very much to everybody for tuning in. I'd like to say thank you to Barbara for being our guest tonight, and I'd like to thank Ian for the person in the background who puts all this together and makes it work for us. So uh, we're going to go and talk to Ian now. Ian's going to turn us off. Thank you very much, everybody, and have a good evening.